Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. Saturday in the park. I wish it wasn't 105. And thus ends the Chicago portion of the show. Chicago may be one of the cities not totally beset by the worst heat wave. I was thinking a lot about the weather, as I'm sure you have been. And I was thinking back to my conversation that I conducted with Michael E. Mann. He is a Penn professor, an expert on climatology, and also, and this is part of his his remit as a professor, an expert on communicating around the issues of global warming and climate change. And I recently had an interesting Twitter exchange that was, I think, in many ways, presaged by this conversation you're about to hear. And after the conversation, I'm going to come back and I'll read some of that Twitter exchange. But, you know, maybe I'll tip my hand a little bit by saying he blocked me. Why did he block me? Very much because of issues that were raised, concerns of mine that we discussed very even-handedly in podcast form. But when it comes on Twitter, it's, I guess, a block, a thrust, a parry. So first, listen to this Michael Mann interview from a couple of years ago, and then I'll read the Twitter exchanges that recently occurred. The director, Michael Mann, gave us heat. The professor, Michael Mann, is working to lessen it. This one, this Michael Mann, who we're talking to now, is a presidential distinguished professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He will also be, this is a big deal, the inaugural director for the new Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. We're here to talk about the paperback edition of his new and exciting book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Professor Michael Mann, thanks for joining me on The Gist. Uh, Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. You hate that joke, right? The Michael Mann joke? (laughs) Oh, you know, I I once, um, I I was the opening interview on Bill Maher, and the first thing he did was to talk about the director, and I should have made that (laughs) joke, and and I did. Right. Of all the movies that he's done, he (laughs) is the one that's right in your wheelhouse. 
So I think we or most of my listeners certainly know about the targets of let's keep uh, warming below two degrees Celsius or one and a half degrees. I'm not sure that everyone knows that this new study and one study isn't the end all be all, but I did see it in nature. And it suggests that it is likely that the two degree Celsius figure will be met if all the nations of the world stick to their goals, which is indeed a big if. But like I said, this is one study. Do you buy it? Yeah, it's it's a huge if, right? Because what what they did is they looked at all the commitments that are on the table. um, And not everybody historically has met their commitments when it comes to these climate negotiations. So if everybody did keep their commitments, then for the first time, based on the progress that was made in the Glasgow uh, conference, COP26 uh, late last year, Um, It now appears that there's a good chance that warming would remain under two degrees Celsius. So there are two important caveats here. First, you know, it's one thing to to talk the talk, something else to walk the walk. We actually need to see these countries implement policies that allow them to actually meet those obligations. That's the first point. The second point, two degrees C, you know, nearly four Fahrenheit is still too much. We've got to keep warming below one and a half. Uh, Celsius. So the way I sort of characterize that study, it reminds us that it's not too late, that we are making progress. We can prevent the worst consequences of climate change from happening, but there's still a fair amount of work to, to do here. And I think everything you just said underlines most of the biggest points that you're making. One is that progress is possible. Two is, let's not be sanguine, not just about the possibility of progress, but the definition of progress. Progress is lessening the bad stuff that's going to happen. But also three, and this is where you really convince me, individual responsibility is not going to get there. When we talk about the commitments, they're not the commitments of you and me or our neighbors. They're the commitments of countries. And without the commitments of countries, you know, forget about everyone changing from an electric vehicle to a gas guzzling vehicle. That just won't do it based on personal choice. Yeah, thanks. This this is, you know, an important point in, in the book uh, that I try to convey um, that, you know, individual action, uh, personal behavioral changes, uh, lifestyle changes aren't going to give us the massive reductions we need. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to do all those things. Of course, we should you know, do everything we can to minimize our environmental impact and our carbon footprint. And many of the things that we do to do that make us feel better about ourselves. They set a good example for others. They make us healthier. They save us money. It's sort of win-win. But there are bad actors out there, and I call them out in the book, um, uh, polluters and those who promote their agenda of continued fossil fuel reliance, uh, who would like us to think that that's the solution, that the entire solution is just us changing our diet, not flying anymore. It's very convenient to them because it takes the pressure off of the need for policy, the need for politicians to implement policies that put a price on carbon that provides subsidies for renewable energy, that block new fossil fuel infrastructure, all of these things that the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to have happen. And so they've engaged in this deflection campaign to convince us that we don't need any of those policies. It's just individual behavioral change. And too often we actually see, you know, perfectly respectable media outlets buying into that framing. They've been very effective at getting us to internalize that sort of thinking 
And so, you know, in the New York Times, for example, we see lots and lots of articles about all of these lifestyle changes you can make to minimize your carbon footprint when the big carbon footprint is the fossil fuel industry. A hundred uh, polluters are responsible for 70% of the global carbon emissions. Right. So let's talk, though, about the personal responsibility and how it might be actually a pretty huge thing. I don't want to even say personal responsibility, personal choices. Yeah. I look at electric vehicles and without the huge public appetite that occurred, I guess because, you know, Tesla's, that's the biggest one now. They seem cool. But people really want to, for a number of reasons, have cars that don't require gasoline. So this is it's it's cyclical, but there is the appetite from the consumer. There is the incentive for the producer. Yep. This will produce, and then there's the government incentive part, but this will produce, at least in a wealthy country like America, where these cars are a lot more expensive and will be for some time, this will produce a pretty big effect, right? If you look at the projections of where uh, um, catalytic converter cars are declining and electric vehicles are increasing. This is not something to sneeze at, is it? No. And, you know, and, and that is one big chunk of our carbon emissions here in the United States, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of about 20%. So, you know, our carbon emissions come from all of our activities, transportation, electricity use, um, you know, agriculture, everything. But this is a pretty big piece of the pie. And so, you know, the challenge here is, we need to electrify transportation, and then we need to decarbonize the grid. So if the grid is powered by renewable energy and you're charging your car off the grid, then you're charging your car off of wind and solar. And, and that's the transition we have to make. And so electric vehicles are an important part of that. Right now, you know, ironically, there are states like North Carolina, which with conservative state legislatures, which have gone out of their way to disincentivize uh, you know, electric vehicles. At one point, they tried to pass legislation outlawing the sale of Teslas in the state of uh, North Carolina. How's that for the free market? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's great irony, of course, just in the politics of that. But the bottom line is that transition is happening. We're seeing people move in that direction, but we need incentives, right? Uh, because we can't just rely upon people who want to buy Teslas and electric vehicles because it makes them feel good and they're willing to pay extra for that. We need to make sure that the incentives are such that they make that choice simply because it's economically advantageous to them. And that's where we need policies. That's where we need those incentives. The biggest thing that at least our government could do, and we'll get to India and China, is I don't want to mischaracterize you, but you really emphasize the importance of a good, efficient carbon tax. Yeah, I think that's an important potential tool. You know, my view is that those of us climate advocates like myself, um, you know, we have a role in informing that conversation. Uh, but, you know, I stop short of trying to prescribe what those solutions will look like. So, you know, if it's a carbon tax, if that's what, you know, our politicians in good faith representing our interests rather than the fossil fuel industry, if they decide that that is sort of you know, uh, a, an agreed upon strategy, that's great. Um, there are alternatives, subsidi subsidies for renewable energy, 
or the sort of clean energy standard that was one of the provisions in Build Back Better. There are different ways to sort of level that playing field. So renewable energy can compete fairly against fossil fuel energy. And a carbon tax, carbon pricing is, is one important way of doing it. Um, I would argue it, it's been successful where it's been implemented in uh, Australia. Uh, they had a, a basically a carbon tax um, for a couple of years before Tony Abbott, conservative prime minister, came in and got rid of it. And in the time that they had it, they saw carbon emissions come down quite a bit, um, 10% within the first nine months. Uh, it was really working. And the fears of some that a carbon tax could be regressive, that it could hurt you know, the poor and frontline communities was really allayed by the way that it played out. Uh, you know, low income earners actually benefited because of the way that the revenue was returned to, um, you know, to, to citizens. And so there is a way to do something like carbon pricing in a manner that's effective and is just, doesn't put undue burden on those with the least resources who had the least role in creating the problem in the first place. There is the idea, the idiom, I think it was Samuel Johnson who at least gets credited with it. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I normally think about that with all of policy. But with climate change, there is also the message, good enough isn't good enough. (laughs) And there's no such thing as good, we have to be better. And if I had advice or analysis, I would say when going to craft the messages in the moment, think about what happens five years from now when the prediction of if we don't do this, it's going to be it's going to be misery. Think about what happens if you don't do that in five years. There's a little bit of, I, I can imagine all the climate activists who are as impassioned as can be, there's no limiting mechanism for how dire you want the messaging to be, except if you think about in five years and we don't hit it, what's what's the takeaway that people are going to have? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I try to do in, in, in the book, I, I, I try to you know make it clear that by some measure, you know, dangerous climate change has arrived, right? If you're Puerto Rico, if you're Houston, uh, if you're California, if you're Australia, if you're, you know, Europe, I mean, the floods, the heat waves, the wildfires, the superstorms, the inundation now of our coastlines with high tides, with simply with high tides in places like Florida, you know, it, dangerous and damaging climate change is is here, okay? And to me, that's sort of a liberating concept. It's a liberating notion because what it tells us is it's not binary. It's not, you know, win, lose. Um, It's about how bad are we willing to let it get? And we've let it get pretty bad because we didn't take the actions we could have decades ago. We can prevent the worst consequences. We can prevent it from getting worse. And the science here is our friend because the science over the last decade tells us that when we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, the plant stops warming up. And you still see this flawed um, and outdated thinking in a lot of, you know, it's fairly widespread in sort of the public discourse over climate change that we've got decades more of warming already locked in that we can't prevent. That's not true. The science tells us that's not true. What the science says is when our carbon emissions go to zero, the surface temperatures on the planet stop increasing. That's the reason we can talk about a a carbon budget. There's a certain amount of carbon that we can burn and keep warming below one and a half Celsius. That budget is being rapidly depleted. So, you know, as I like to say, there's the urgency. Our budget is running out, but there's the agency. We still have a budget. It's not zero. It's not negative. Yeah. 
So now we get to perhaps the challenging portion of the interview. Can the world change without America? So you ask the, you know, the, the, the key question here. Um, I think without leadership by the United States, it's very difficult to see any sort of uh, global agreement, um, global action that limits warming below those dangerous levels that we're talking about, one and a half Celsius, three Fahrenheit. Um, that's not going to happen without concerted action. And I don't think concerted action is going to happen without the world's largest legacy polluter, the United States, taking a lead. And so the good news is we have an administration that's tried to do that, the Biden administration through executive actions, um, et cetera, by making commitments uh, it, because of, you know, diplomacy with um, China and, and the rest of the world. We've seen some real progress, but the Biden administration can't make good on its commitments without these efforts being codified in legislation. And so in the end, our credibility on the world stage and it's essential that we lead and, and that we have credibility in our efforts. And our, our credibility depends on us being able to meet the commitments we've made. Our ability to meet the commitments we've made is going to require legislation in the U.S. Congress. Right now, we don't have the votes there to get it through. Um, we've got 48 Democrats and uh, two supposed Democrats who really are caucusing with the Republicans on this issue right now. Can America change with just the Democratic Party doing the advocating and acting? You know, I, I wish we lived in uh, a country where there still was some bipartisan goodwill and you had, you know, politicians crossing the aisle to work with colleagues on the other side. Um, the reality is that there is only one party that seems to have any interest, not just in legislating on climate, but in legislating, in governing, <laughs> um, in, in building something up rather than tearing it down. And that is going to have to change if we are to see cooperation. Um, in the current political atmosphere, the only way to get climate action, uh, legislation through Congress is going to be by electing a larger number of Democrats uh, to the Senate. Because the reason I ask that is I've looked at your Twitter feed and at one recently you tweeted they're Republicans. So, of course, they lied. You tweeted you tweeted Dems have a story to tell. It's not hard. It's the defining archetype rebel alliance versus galactic galactic empire, free peoples of Middle Earth versus Mordor, Democrats v. Republicans, good versus evil. And I said to myself. He, all he is doing is in adding to the polarization. We're never going to change if, you know, the main, one of the main experts and the main expert on messaging is just who wants to save the earth is going scorched earth against 50 something percent of the American people. If you look at their votes, I say it's not 50, uh, it's not the people, it's people who are not being well represented by. Sure, but given elected. the structure of our government and how gerrymandering and the, the uh, uh, electoral college works. Uh, well, even know, more than that, I, I'm yeah. saying that you've got politicians who are not at all representing the interests of those who voted for them. And so. I agree. But the point is either you can have a public facing rhetorical strategy that welcomes in Republicans, or you could try to torpedo them yeah, you because can't. you've identified them as yeah. evil. And so you've done yeah, a second. my view right now is you can't do that. I mean, you have at some point in, 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 you know, in the 1940s, there was a point where we had to say there is a political movement here 
that is evil and a threat to the world. And the Republican Party, sadly, sadly, sadly to many faithful Republicans, um, and there are many, you know, uh, polit- uh, you know, uh, Republicans out there uh, of goodwill um, who have said that they know they feel like their their party has left them. Um, it's become the party of Trump. It's become the party of untruths. It's become the party of um, of punitive actions aimed at hurting people. Um, it's at some point you have to get off the fence and say, in its current visage, in its current form, the Republican Party is a very destructive force, and it does have to be defeated. And something new, I hope, will arise. What I hope that that will do, if the party of Trump, if the current Republican version of the Republican Party, which is the party of Trump and the party of fascism and the party of um, anti-democratic, you know, actions, that if that party is defeated, then something new hopefully hopefully forms that looks more like the Republic. I think we need two parties with very different visions of the good faith visions of the way the world should be that can work together and find common ground. That is not true that's not possible with the current Republican Party. The Republican Party needs to be reclaimed by the more moderate voices um, within it. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not just me, it's some of the leading thinkers in the Republican Party um, who uh, long time, very loyal Republicans who have said, we've got to destroy this thing right now that's calling it the Republican Party so we can reclaim the party for what it once was. And so I I do feel that. I feel in its current form, you can't work with them. You can't collaborate with them. You have to defeat them so that we get, you know, like the Phoenix, the rebirth of the Phoenix, we, we get something that replaces it, that, that, you know, that is more like what we had. Yeah. Uh, and I could see why you'd like the Phoenix, given its recyclability as, as a <laughs> creature. <laughs> Michael Mann is the author of Newly Out in Paperback, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. He's the inaugural director of the New Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. It was, it was really enjoyable to have this conversation with you. Okay. So that was the interview, and I'm going to play. We don't air the whole interview. If you're a subscriber to Pesca Plus, you know that. But we do conduct, I think, what was that, a 20-something minute interview? So I think I actually talked to him for 42 minutes, and there was a little more follow-up on my concern about going scorched earth, as it were, against all Republicans or all conservatives or, in general, acting, another unintentional pun, intemperate in some areas that may discredit him in other areas and we need him in other areas so a couple it was last week and this was when judge eileen cannon made her ruling about when the trump document trial would occur and she put the date of may i think it was may 24th on that and i read through what the experts said including a lot of experts who really 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 want trump convicted you know george conway and the like and they all said, this is, this is a fine ruling. This is a fair ruling. This is a prudent ruling. In fact, if anything, it's good for the general forces of Trump needs to be held accountable. However, when that ruling came out, Professor Michael Mann tweeted, Jack Smith and team must appeal to have this case taken away from traitorous Judge Cannon. The sanctity of our democracy rests on it. 
This weighed on me for all the reasons that you couldn't guess having heard that interview and knowing me. And I tweeted to him and I wondered, should I do this? But I said, why not? We had a good rapport at the time. And if he remembers me, he'll know where I'm coming from. And even if he doesn't, he'll just, uh, well, listen to the tweet. Professor Mann, I like you a lot. You're this unbelievably important voice on climate issues. You have authority and credibility on that issue. On this, you spend down your credibility by drawing a, I think, rash conclusion in an area where you have less expertise for what it's worth. But I wrote FWIW. And then I didn't hear from him again, so I moved on. A friend of mine said, did he block you? I'm like, what do you mean, did he block me? Why would he block me? I heard Michael Mann blocks a lot of people. I looked, he blocked me. Michael Mann blocked me. And then... He wrote, yeah, I have opinions about American democracy and the threat posed by Trump, the GOP, and those who support them. If you don't like that, don't follow me. And if you say, stay in your lane, I'll block you. That's the end of this public service message. Stay in your lane. I don't know if you have to stay in your lane necessarily. You might want to not rush headlong into oncoming traffic. I would advise that that would, you know, impinge upon your ability to effectively communicate science and do other things. That's fine. He could do whatever he wants. And maybe, you know, he's doing such important work that, you know, he doesn't have time for the haters or the doubters or the critics. However, part of his important work is public communications and not just the content that I played for you on the show. And I'm going to play you a little more of that interview. It's not a gotcha. It just gets more into how important it is to communicate even with those who aren't in our camp to begin with. If your job, I say, if your job is public communications and you give in to your most feral instincts and you give in to your most knee-jerk impulses, well, I then would say you're not communicating at your utmost, which is fine for everyone, except for someone whose job is communication and the thing that they're supposed to communicate about is just about the most important thing in the world. In fact, it is the world. So yeah, I think someone doing that, and I'm sorry to say this is true of Michael Mann, is not doing his job at his utmost. And it's a very important job. That was exactly why I tweeted to him a, I thought, very kind, very reasonable critique that he perhaps reconsider spending down his credibility in an area where he is wrong, where he is just flat out wrong, and also an area where he is not an expert. If he wants to turn it around saying, well, I believe in democracy, so be it, reflect or don't, I have an audience of, I don't know, it's not hundreds of thousands, but it's tens of thousands. And if you're saying, I don't want to communicate with them, I mean, I'm not going to be able to see Michael Mann's tweets anymore, right? On matters of the climate, they helped me. They made their way into the show. He was informing me. He was communicating to me. I was communicating to you. I was having him on the show. I was understanding and learning things that he tweeted. Now that I'm blocked, I do not see that. It is not the end of the world, but you know what is? Everything that he's supposed to be an expert on. I'll now play a little bit extra of that original interview just to further elucidate you know, what I thought was then reasonable pushback, and it really does go to show when people talk in person, or at least on Riverside, it goes a lot better than when people talk on Twitter. But I'll play a little of that, and then I'll say goodbye. I understand what you're saying. Basically, in a, in, a, in a sentence, 
since the American government structure is polarized, there's no point in ignoring that. You've got to work through the polarization to win, get wins. I don't know if I disagree, but I would think that someone in your position would be more likely to say that I'm not going to add to the polarization. <clears throat> I want to at least give Republicans a permission structure. You know, I've, ter- I've, ta- I've heard Barack Obama and others talking about this. Give them off ramps. Give them a permission yeah. structure. Don't go at them so hard, so publicly, especially, you know, you are uh, an expert who needs to be listened to, especially by Republicans who are more suspicious yeah. of scientists than Democrat. Was it the yeah. case that you tried that tactic? And it didn't work. No, I, I would say that uh, that is, uh, you know, and, and and there's always nuance that's lost in Twitter. And we, yes. we all, you know, uh, you know, hot takes abound. And, I, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I'm not entirely immune from 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 engaging in them myself. You're a um, person. You're human. You get mad. You see <laughs> things that are happening but, and it's infuriating. I understand. Yeah. But I but I hope that what's clear in my messaging overall is that I think there's a room. I, I think there's a place and there's room for moderate uh, Republicanism. And what I want to see is the party reclaimed by those voices, by those more moderate voices, by the states, you know, the, 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 the states people, the statesmen, stateswomen um, yeah. who, who used to represent that party. And there are a few of them there. They, they're pretty quiet right now because they're fearful. They'll be primaried out of their you know, position by a pro-Trump candidate if they speak up. Um, so, yes, we need to create room for them. And I'll tell you that many of them speak in a very similar way to, to, to me. You know, you've got like the, the bulwark um, is sort of this, uh, this news site of sort of ex-Republicans who are now never Trumpers. And you've got um, people like Jennifer Rubin, who write for the Washington Post. Um, you've got David Frum, you know, former uh, speech writer um, for, uh, I believe it was... Um, uh, George W. Bush, George, he invented George the George axis of evil, yeah. <laughs> so you've got a lot of these, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about these figures, who are George Will, even, <laughs> remarkably, who have said, this party has left us. This is not our party. And I hope what's implicit, if not always explicit in my hot takes on Twitter, is that that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the traditional Republican Party. I want back the traditional Republican Party. We can work with a Democratic Party and, a, and, and the traditional Republican Party. There's room for, 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 you know, for progress there. But I think you know, the, my framing isn't that different from the framing used by many of these conservative figures right now who said, this is not us. Right. This is not what we had in mind. This is a danger to everything that we believe in. Um, and so I think, ironically, there is some common ground among many Democrats and many old school moderate Republicans that who have said, look, the only you know, I've heard people, I don't know if it was George Will, I think it might have been George Will or David Frum or one of these uh, folks, sort of former pillar of the Republican Party, who said, you know, in this next election, you need to vote for Democrats. <laughs> we need to defeat this version of the Republican Party so that there's an opportunity to get something back that's more like, you know, what we once had, the good faith politics we once had. So, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of, uh, you know, uh, hot takes here and there. And, and Twitter tweets often lack some of the nuance and context that we'd like them to. But if you look at sort of my larger body of Twitter work, yes, <laughs> I think 
I think it, you know, the it's really about the radicals that have taken over the Republican Party, not the idea of a Republican Party. Yeah, I personally would just like to lower the hot takes by 1.5 degrees Celsius, but (laughs) we all could disagree. So I have one last question. Let's reduce them by 50% over the next decade. And goodbye. As I promised, I would say goodbye. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist, and Corey War is the assistant producer. And if you wish to get into contact with us, do so. Uh, write your thoughts on the Reddit page. Check out The Gist on Reddit, or go to MikePesca.com, or The Gist at MikePesca.com. We accept feedback from everyone except Michael. No, you know what? Including Michael Mann.